You are now entering the smoke room featuring your boy King Mac. What's up, King Mac? I appreciate you. Brought to you by the Bad Guy Radio. Welcome to the Smoke Room with your boy King Mac. Today I got a special guest for you. I got Jordan Lazowski. He's from that Socks on 35th crew. He went to the University of Notre Dame. He's the editor-in-chief of Socks on 35th and Diamond Digest. And now uh, it's a kind of a pod I've been looking forward to do. You know, I finally get a, a numbers guy in here and we can chop it up a little bit. How you doing, Jordan? King Mac is an absolute pleasure. How you doing, my friend? I'm doing good. I'm doing very good. So let's get into the White Sox a little bit. How how are you feeling so far about the start of the season? About as good as you can feel at nine and nine. I think they're a team that you look back, you start re- really analyzing each part of the game and breaking it all down and looking at what went right, what went wrong, and it's like this team could have been better than nine and nine. Like. If we're straight up about it, this team could have been a lot better than they are right now. But you play 162 for a reason, you're going to drop games you should have won, and you're going to win games you should have lost. It's going to happen over the course of the year. Uh, I'm, I'm feeling as good as, about as good as I possibly can at this point. I think that there's still plenty of room for improvement, and being able to say that at 9-9, nine and nine, that's a good place to be. 20 games into the season. I can't complain too much. I think there's some good, there's some bad, there's some ugly. Um, but that's any baseball season at the same time. So you make a good point. You said the good, the bad, and the ugly. So from your point of view, what has been the good so far? The good has been the starting pitching. I think a lot of worry has come from what's the starting pitching going to look like what, what's that four and five looking like at the back end of the rotation? How, how is this consistency going to mold out? And outside of Giolito just having a clunker the other day, team's been pretty good. I, the, 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 the most you can ask, especially early on, keep your team in ball games. Like, Make sure you're going long enough to where your bullpen can start working and, and you can play to your strengths. Like, Keep yourself in the ball game. That's all you got to ask at the end of the day. I think that, and then we've seen Luis Roberts looking good recently. I think Adam Eaton a signing that a lot of people didn't like. He's been keeping the offense afloat at times for these first 18 games. I think there's a lot to look back. It's like there are guys who are being so productive. You mean Mercedes, another one where it's like, you would have never expected. These are the guys carrying your offense. Carlos Ordon, no one throwing a no hitter. You would never expected him to be the five starter that he is right now. It's that sort of production from the people you typically wouldn't expect it from, or maybe just, more so role guys versus top tier guys that that's that's awesome to have and when adam eaton is doing real well for you and it's early april when everything else starts coming along you're you're going to be in good shape so do you have any worry about uh dallas i'm a little bit you know on the on the fence about him so far this season i mean he's giving up some home run balls mm-hmm. normally the ground ball pitcher. I mean, this last game, 
uh, he did pretty well as far as getting ground balls. But he's been giving up some long fly balls. So do you have any concern about him or you like what he's done so far? I do and I don't. Um, I, I think, you know, pitchers are their own animal. And, you know, you can't question how a pitcher gets themselves ready. But, you know, if you look at back at spring training, he was the last guy to get starts. He was the last guy to get going. It's like, was there something wrong? Was he maybe not feeling it where he's a couple weeks behind everybody else right now? I think he even said it after his last outing. He's like, you know, this is the first time I really felt I was starting to feel good. And it's like, all right, that's cool. Like, great. But why weren't you feeling that before? So it's like, is that an injury thing? Is it just I wasn't ready thing? That's fine. So that's why it's like, I'm not totally concerned because I feel like we still haven't seen Dallas Keuchel. At the same time, though, you're saying, I mean, he's a soft-tossing left-hander. They're reliant on soft contact and good defense. And when you talk about the ugly of White Sox baseball right now, it's been the defense. And having that kind of pitcher anchoring the middle of your rotation between your top half and your back half, you need to make sure that your defense is top-notch. And it wasn't a problem in those 60 games last year. Over the course of 162, it's got to be good. Like, especially when you have guys like Keuchel, who, you know, he might, you, you might look at the box score and it's like, man, he had a bad game. And then you look at some of these balls to get through or some of the balls that are thrown around infield. And it's like, man, this guy, this guy ain't getting what he deserves out there points too. I said, so it's like, yeah, I, the hard contact is certainly concerning. You're bringing up a great point. And at the same time, I still want to wait maybe two, three more starts. If Dallas Keuchel isn't feeling like Dallas Keuchel yet, well, eventually, I'm hoping we're seeing it. If he never feels like Dallas Keuchel, now we got real issues. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a good point as far as, like, you know, it's still early in the season, waiting, a, you know, maybe a month and a half, two months to really see what guy's at. That makes sense to me. So what is the bad that you have seen so far with this White Sox team? The bad's been, I mean, except for this past game in Cleveland, Jose Abreu, Yoan Moncada, Yasmani Grandal, your big boppers in the middle, they don't look good right now. And it's early, it's April, I get it. Um, but at the same time, it's like you, you're still seeing a team that's not putting it fully together yet. You got some guys doing real well, other guys not, and it's like when are the wheels going to start clicking? We saw it in Cleveland. I, I think the other side of the bad has been the bullpen has been okay, um, it just hasn't produced the results. I think, you know, you look at some of the numbers behind it and it's, yeah, they're probably doing better than the luck they're getting right now, but it's still not that lockdown bullpen we were expecting out of spring training. So it's like, there's some bad there. There's some light at the end of the tunnel also, but the, the bad is just in general too. It's just the, the team between whether you look at it on offense or defense or pitching the bullpen, they're not meshing as a whole yet. And I think that adds the frustration Sox fans are feeling. I get it's early. Trust me. I'm the, I'm the patience guy. I try and be at least, mm-hmm. but I get I, when you're playing 20 games and you look like a, a world series contender one night and two nights later, you're throwing the ball around. Like you've never played little league before. It's like ha- having those kinds of games. It's frustrating as a fan. It's I, I completely understand that. That's where the bad comes in. It's like, yeah, it's individual pieces, but they're all adding up to a whole of inconsistent baseball. I mean, do you think, you know, as someone who's into metrics as you are, do you think the inconsistency of the offense has been the fact that the lineup has kind of been inconsistent from the manager, or do you think 
uh, that really doesn't matter. It's just guys that are cold right now or are struggling or in a slump. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, when you're talking about line of construction, I, I think the biggest thing is not so much where they're hitting. I mean, there's a mentality to where you're hitting in the lineup. Don't get me wrong. Nine hitters not thinking the same way a three hitter is. Um, so so there, there's an aspect to where they're hitting. I think the biggest thing has just been consistent playing time too. It's, I mean, LaRusse even said early on, Hey, I like getting my guys some innings early on and that's fine. I, I think even though in April it's cold, you got, these guys need to get their reps and especially your main guys got to get their reps and, and get going and feeling that groove. And, you know, so for some players, you just need at bats to start feeling good. It, sitting on the bench, playing every other day, and and taking these rest games in order to give guys on the bench their time too. It's like you got to balance the risk and reward there. The risk is now your starters aren't getting the innings they need. Um, I, I think some of that inconsistency is probably plays a factor, but at the same time, I mean, when your name's in the lineup, you got to be ready to go. So you brought up Grandel and I was listening to mm-hmm. you. And when I look at Grandel, I don't really look at him as a middle of the order bat. And I know that uh, you got to look at position and, you know, compared to what other catchers do, I guess you can say he is a middle of mm-hmm. the order bat as far as, you know, not too many guys at the catcher position can hit as well as him. But when I think of a middle of the order bat, I traditionally think of a 30 home run guy at least, a 100 RBI guy, somebody that can bat, bat around, 270, 275, and up, and somebody who gets on base as well. But when I look at Grandel, I don't see like a 30 home run guy. I don't see a 100 RBI guy. So do you think he's a guy that should be sliding in the middle of the order, or do you think he's someone that should be probably like hitting six somewhere in that area? So you actually bring up a really good point. It's where does Grandal hit? Because you're right. He's a 2080 in terms of home runs and REIs type guy. His main profile, besides being a left-handed bat with some pop, is he's real good at getting on base. So where so now it's debating where do you want to put these guys? In a world where Anderson and Eaton aren't doing as well as they are at the top of the lineup, if the Sox are struggling to find a two-hitter right now, I'd hit Grandal too. I think you'd find a lot of people doing that. He's someone who's going to work the count get on base, and at the same time, if Anderson's on, give him the ability to, hey, maybe take a base here. I LaRusse has been good about starting to steal a little bit again. Get Anderson on, get him over. Let's see what happens with uh, Grandal. Worst thing, he rolls over. Now Anderson's on third. Get him on, get him over, get him in type thing. I, th- I think you're absolutely right that, you know, in a full-strength lineup that maybe has Eloy Jimenez in it, Grandal's probably hitting sixth. If you're looking at maybe maybe Eaton struggling a little bit, or you're you're looking to get switch guys up a little bit, Grandal at two kind of fits there. I, I think you're absolutely right that it's more so this team without Jimenez necessitates Grandal becomes a three four five guy. You're middle of the order bet, but is he that prototypical? Like you're saying, thirty a hundred like can leave the ballpark at any time? Not necessarily. He will leave the ballpark. But that's not necessarily how he's approaching every at-bat. Yeah, I think, you know, I think some of the slack or negativity that Grandel get is the fact that 
people look at him. Mm-hmm. And for him to be hitting maybe fifth or uh, sometimes they had him as high as fourth, I believe. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, no, they, they haven't because Makata. So he's been fifth mostly. It's, but it's like they looking like, well, okay, where is, what's special about him? Sure. Like when you look at his back, what is special about his bat in the middle order. And don't get me wrong, walking, getting on base, that's important. But when you're talking about a middle of the order guy, you're looking for somebody that's going to drive that guy in. Sure. Can a walk drive a guy in? Yeah, with well, bases loaded. But what is the likelihood of a walk driving a guy in? And I won't say Grandel mm-hmm. is like a, like a Collins or anything because he's way mm-hmm. better than Collins. He's not a strikeout walk guy or home run guy. He's not like a three outcome hitter. But I think he takes a lot of slack because people look at him and they're like, everybody's saying he's the number two catcher in the league or the best catcher mm-hmm. in the league. And they look at him like, okay, what's special about this guy? He sure. makes some mistakes that should he shouldn't make as a veteran. Uh, you look at his numbers, batting-wise, okay, he has a high OBP, but he's not hitting 30 home runs. He don't drive in 100 guys. So, like, what makes this guy special? And I think you guys have to explain, like, what it is that you see in Grandel that makes him special because just looking at him, it's like, he's sure. a, you know, he's above average, you know what I mean? But it's nothing special there. Yeah. And, and here's part of the thing, too, here. You know, if you look around the league, just in general, catcher's a weaker position. So just because you are the top two catcher in baseball, that might mean you're the fifth, sixth best player on your team. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's not, a, again, I am a huge Grandal fan. That is not a knock on Grandal. I think you got to look at the structure of the ball player he is. And, you, and you're pointing out perfectly, this is a guy who's going to prioritize getting on base. Mm-hmm. Use him as a player that's prioritizing getting on base. Not a guy who's going to drive and runs every time. I think if you stop looking at Grandal as this 30 home run, 100 RBI machine, if you look at his numbers over his career, like the reason he got him is because he's pretty good behind the plate in terms of getting your pitcher some strikes and and counts they need it. And he's pretty good at getting on base and making value in his at-bats, like at least finding a way to walk if he's not going to find a gap somewhere. Okay. When you start to shift how you value him as a player and – Call it what it is. It's uh, on this team in terms of offensive value. When they're at their best, Abreu, Moncada, Robert, Anderson, Jimenez, these guys got all these high 30 home run ceilings, 100 RBI ceilings. They got these high, high ceilings. Grandal's ceiling is like a 25 homer guy. And there are others who have much higher ceilings than that on this team. So keeping that in mind at the same time, just don't try and make him a player he's not. He's the second-best catcher in baseball. It doesn't mean he's the second-best player on your team. See, I think you explained that well. I think if people looked at it that way, they'd look at him as a totally different uh, player. To me, I agree. In a perfect world, Rondell probably would be a decent hitter in the two-spot mm-hmm. because he gets on base a lot. That would be good if you have – you know, Makata hitting three like he is now, Abreu hitting uh, four. My only issue with Grandel hitting second is his speed. He yeah, kinda that's like fair. He kind of, like, clogs the bases. 
And I don't necessarily know if that's a good thing because Moncada, even though he had a great 2019 year, he's not really a home run guy neither. Mm -hmm. If you look at him, he's kind of in the mode of Grandel. He's just more athletic. I mean, he has a good eye. He normally takes his walks. He's not a hundred RBI guy. He's not hasn't been a thirty home run hitter. You know mm-hmm. what I mean. So he's kind of in that same mode. That's why I thought. That's why I think he likes hitting too. He said that himself. Yeah. And I think he would be good in the two spot because he's athletic. He has speed. He takes walks. Uh, he mm-hmm. does have power. That doesn't mean he's gonna hit thirty home runs, but yeah. he does have power. But I think if Grandel had a little bit more speed, I would agree more with him being in a two spot. But to me, just to clog up the bases, and like I said, sure. so now if Mankata hits a double, Grandel probably not going to score. You know, sure. he probably ends up on third base. You know, now if you he need hit, another hit to get him in. Yeah, absolutely. You, you know what I mean? If he hit, so I, when I look at a lineup, I look at a lineup in terms: what is the most efficient way you can score runs. Yeah. I agree with the metric guys that home run is the most efficient way you can score a run. Mm-hmm. I have no problem with that. My only problem is how many guys are going to hit 30 home runs on the team? Yeah. That's number one. And then out of those 30 home runs, how many of those home runs are going to be hit in the same game? So just look right. at, just look at, Yesterday's game, let's say Abreu, he hits 30 home runs. Let's say Grandel hits 30 home runs. Let's say uh, T.A. hits 30 home runs. Well, guess what? All two, Three of those 30 home runs from each of those came in the same game. And sure. how many times that's going to happen? Over the course of the season, yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. when I look at a lineup as far as, like, scoring runs, to me, you have to – don't get me wrong, you get a bomb, that's fine. But you have to be able to put up runs when you have your best chance to score. So when you got a guy on third base, it's less than two outs, you have to be able to get that guy in. So that yeah. when I look at a lineup, to me, that's how I view it. I want to know what is the most efficient way we can score runs. And that's why I do agree with the 30 home run guys being in the middle. I understand mm-hmm. that. I do agree with on you know high on base guys being one and two. I don't necessarily think you should make a lineup just based off on base percentage. Like, okay, yeah. this guy's a four hundred on base guy, he should be hitting one. This guy's a three ninety nine on you know what I mean? Sure. Well, you no, absolutely. Order, you know, I don't I don't agree with that because it's a difference between getting on base and driving guys in. Yeah. It's a totally different mindset. You know, if you look at Abreu, and that's why sometimes he pressed, is because he's trying to drive guys in. So sure. when he gets a guy on third, he's chasing because his mindset is, I'm not walking. I'm finna bring this guy home. Yeah. So it's a totally, totally different mindset, which, I mean, sometimes that could be negative as well because we've seen he strike out sometimes with a guy on third base when we just need contact. But that that's my only point or my only concern with uh Grandel hitting second, but I agree. I don't think he's a terrible player that make that people's making out him making him out to be. I don't think he's a great player neither, as far as sure. like 
one of the great players of the, in the league or anything like that. I think Grandel is probably above average player for his position. I guess mm-hmm. you can consider him, you know, one of the best catchers in the league. But I just don't see him being great. And his defense, I, to me, it lacks. But that's because I just look at the game from uh, the traditional defensive standpoints from catchers. Sure. Catching the ball consistently, throwing the ball, not making dumb mistakes. Sure. That's how I look at, you know, the catcher position. But to be honest, I mean, I don't think Rondell's a bad player. I don't understand why he gets so much slack. <laughs> I mean, he, he has been the best catcher for us probably since A.J. Przinsky. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, I mean, for a fact, since A.J. Yeah. Przinsky. So, and it's not like we have a great history of catchers. I mean, we got cards and fists. But it's not now like, you're going yeah, way, way back, back now. You see what I'm saying? So, <laughs> right. I mean, he, he he's not he's not a bad bad player. No, you know? and I think treat him as what he is. He's again, I mean, the best center fielder in baseball is probably the best offensive player in baseball. The best shortstop in baseball is probably top five. Mm-hmm. The best catcher in baseball. It thing it you gotta it's gotta depend on position too. It, if you if you came in to this Grandal contract and you thought they were paying him eighteen million dollars to hit thirty home runs, it's not what they were doing. Mm-hmm. They were paying him to get on base to hit from the left side, hit the ball out of the ballpark once in a while with some good authority, find your gaps, and add some some st- stability to a position that has historically been very weak for the White Sox. Mm. That's what they're paying him to do. They're not paying him to be Jose Abreu Jr. and hit 30 bombs. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, it's a different $18 million you're spending on him there. Yeah. That's a, that's all I'm trying to say with Grandal is I get, he has these shortcomings, but look at the catching market around the league, man. You're not going to find much better than that. Yeah. It's not deep. I'll tell you that. No, it's not a deep uh, bunch. So what would you say is your favorite metric? advanced stat what what is your go-to what do you you know when you when you need to write an article or something what is your go-to stat like this is my go-to yeah so if i'm looking offensively there's a stat called weighted on base average it's woba um what it does is it kind of takes all right you, you know you look at certain things and let's take batting average on base percentage slugging percentage it kind of takes the strengths and weaknesses of all three of those stats and combines them into one, you know, slugging it's the formula is one times the amount of singles two t- plus two times the amount of doubles. Well, a double's not necessarily always double as valuable as a single. It's just double the amount of bases. So it's like, it takes data and says, okay, based on, you know, the runs that have been scored over time, and based on the value that's been coming from these uh, types of at-bats and these types of hits, what's the uh, true approximate value of hitting a double or of hitting a triple or of hitting a home run? And that's where it takes, you know, batting average treats all hits the same. Slugging percentage doesn't necessarily um, weight them correctly. And on base percentage treats a walk the same as a hit, where that's not necessarily true either. So it kind of takes, but there are strengths in all of those. Batting average, it tells me, are you hitting or not? 
On base percentage, are you getting on base? Slugging percentage, are you hitting the ball with authority? And it takes all these things and makes it one number. And it's just like batting average, on base percentage, slugging. The higher it is, the better you are as a ball player. I love that stat um, for, for offensive guys. I think it takes the bet, it literally takes the best of the old school, the best of the new school, and puts it all together in its best approximation of what is the true value this player is bringing. And like 330, you know, if you have a 330 on base percentage, you're doing pretty good. Same thing with weighted on base average. If you have a 330 Woba, you're doing pretty good. There's players who are doing a lot better, but you're doing pretty good. It it all just, it it fits so nicely too into how we understand traditional stats in terms of just the general, um, you know, like I said, if you say 330 on base percentage, it kind of means the same thing as saying a 330 Woba. You're, You're in the same ballpark for how you're valuing that player. Um, that's why I like it. I think it's very easy to understand. You don't have to know the math behind it to use it and to rank it amongst other players in the league. It takes the strengths and weaknesses of things we all use and puts it in one number. And I love that. So like you said, it doesn't, all doubles are not the same. Mm-hmm. The WOBA. Yep. Okay. That's interesting. It's so kinda- it it just kind of says, you know, instead of saying, Either a walk's as good as a hit or a double's twice as good as a single. That's not necessarily true all the time. So it kind of tries and says, okay, what's the approximate value? And then what's the approximate value of a triple? It's not necessarily three times that much of a single. Not everything's made the same. Hmm. I like that. Man, I'm, uh, you, you got me interested now. <laughs> it it kind of sounds like plus minus a little bit. It's it's literally taking the best <laughs> of everything you kind of enjoy and also pointing out the weaknesses and saying, hey, batting average is good for this, but we can do better. On base percentage is good for this, but we can do better. And it literally tries to do better than all of those and put it into one number so that people aren't arguing average versus OBP. Let's just go look at WOBA. And let's see what that kind of value starts to look like now, too. Can, can we start to put it all together that way? And it's a strictly offensive metric. Yes, you can use it to evaluate pitchers. If pitch or if hitters have a 350 woba off of hit or off of a pitcher, they're not doing too good. Like you can use it both ways, but primarily you're going to use it for your hitters evaluations. Okay. So, what is your least favorite metric? My least favorite because no, not nobody. That's too strong because not a lot of people are going to use it correctly. Is Babbitt. Batting average on balls in play. And it's not exactly advanced. It's pretty straightforward. It takes a look at all the balls you put in play. What's your batting average on it? And what people mistakenly use that for without looking anything deeper is to try and say, oh, he had a 408 Babbitt. That's like incredibly lucky. You're definitely going to be worse than you were last year. And it's like, yes, probably, because it is super high. But to just look at one number... And and that's and that's why I think it's the worst because that is the one stat where people are going to look at one statistic alone and and make an entire judgment on a player. And for me, that's incredibly frustrating. There there is not one number, at least in my personal opinion, there's not one number on this planet that's going to tell me if a player is good or bad because there's always something beneath it. There's always something I can learn more. Yohan Moncada having a 400 BABIP in 2019. Well, 
if you look at some of the advanced metrics and say, okay, based on how hard he was hitting the ball, based on whether he was hitting line drives or fly balls, like if you start looking at all of that, you know, it was he lucky once in a while. Yeah, but he was hitting the ball real hard. And if you hit the ball hard, you're going to get more hits like that. That's why it just goes so far beyond Babbitt and to stop at that one number. And a lot of people do it. I think that's the most frustrating one for me. And it's useful. Don't get me wrong. But it's so often misused and just used as a very general number and just thrown out as if it has this huge amount of weight to it. It's so frustrating to me. Yeah, I mean, that's a stat that uh, I dislike. Uh, <laughs> and because the reason- there's so much that goes into it. Like yeah, I mean, Tim Anderson. Exactly. Tim Anderson's always going to have a high Babbitt because he's fast. He's going to beat out infield singles. Like, that's not luck at the end of the day. That's some sort of skill you have in there, yeah. too. And he, you got to think, Tim Anderson is an aggressive hitter. Yeah. So he's going to put the ball in play a ton. Mm-hmm. And then to try to – my problem with Babbitt is, like for T.A., some guys was trying to use uh, great hitters of the past and said, well, they had this Babbitt, and then they compared T.A. Babbitt to theirs, and then they say, well, it's unsustainable because – this guy had this Babbitt, and he's a way better hitter. We know mm-hmm. from his career stats that he's a way better hitter than T.A., so this is totally unsustainable. But the thing is, the game is played differently in each right. era. So the type of defense that that guy was facing is totally different than the type of defense that Tim Anderson is facing. So and it's, think of, oh, go ahead. So it's kind of hard to... Like, use that stat mm-hmm. against someone, especially comparing them to players of the past, because it's, it's totally different situation. And then when you compare players, let's say you compare T.A. with, I don't know, Mike Trout, anybody. Just mm-hmm. just a Babbitt. You're looking at two totally different players. As far as speed, as far as athleticism, I mean, just two totally different styles of players. So that was always my problem, like, with some metric guys, is they don't understand, like, well, sometimes what you're looking at with your eyes is actually mm-hmm. the truth. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah. Baseball is a game that's played by humans. Yeah. So somebody's going to beat the numbers that you expect them not to beat. Because Tim they, Anderson's been doing it for two years yes, now. Two, it's yeah, driving exactly. people nuts. Yeah, they, because they don't understand it. But if you look right. at his game, you can understand why. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just like Robert is going to have a, a, a similar situation the more and more he start, starts making contact. Yeah. It's going to be the same thing. He's going to have a high BAB uh, Babbitt. And people going to wonder, well, is this sustainable? I mean, look at this guy's speed. I mean, he's going to beat out routine it, ground balls to short. To second. He beat out a routine <laughs> ground ball to second base just yesterday. So, I mean, you can't use that number and not put it into context. To me, right. you can't use any number and not put it into context. And yeah. so many people don't put it into context. And that's why it's my least favorite one. Mm-hmm. It's because you take something that any one statistic is just meant to be the start of a story. Like, there is so much more to something than just the first number. The first number is supposed to tell you where to go next. Mm -hmm. It's not supposed to give you the answer. 
you're supposed to take, I mean, think of if you walked into work one day and made all of your, all of your conclusions to something on a single number, mm-hmm. your boss is going to be like, are you kidding me? You're using one number to tell me everything about a player or about an individual, whatever company, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and that's why it frustrates me the most because it's not meant to be just one number. Analytics is not meant to be, and analytics people do this a lot too. It's not supposed to be one number means everything. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be one number supposed to lead you to the next, to the next, to the next, so on and so forth until you get somewhere where you're like, yeah, I've explored every avenue. I've got this full story. And sometimes it starts with something you see on TV or it starts with this number. It all works in tandem. Mm-hmm. And BABIP is the one stat more than any other where people will just let that tell the whole story. And that's why it drives me absolutely nuts. Okay. So this the this the smoke room. So I want to ask you, what bothers you the most about traditional stat people that, that just... They love traditional stats. They don't want to hear the metrics. Traditional stats is it. It explains everything. This metric stuff is nonsense. It's just a bunch of nerds trying sure. to get their way into the game. What bothers you the most about traditional? And and this is not, let me be clear before I say anything about it. This is not all traditional stat people. Mm-hmm. It's It's not so much, and this is, this is a, this opens up a large topic in general when it comes to this. It's the fact that, you know, I get that the game was played the same way now in many aspects as it was 100 years ago. There's still four bases. They're all 90 feet away from each other. The pitcher's 60 feet, six inches away. It's all still played the same. But the players are bigger, faster, stronger, and you have more information available to you now. You go to work... And you say, I don't want to look at any of these numbers you got for me. I just want to trust my gut. I will not have a job the next day. Like, if there's information available to you, I think you should at least be open-minded to read about it, learn about it a little bit. And that's why I have so much respect for you. I didn't even say that yet. You're someone who, hey, you're old school. I love it. I respect it. But you're sitting here willing to talk to me, someone who's very new school, and we're having good conversations on this. We might not agree on everything. But you're willing to sit here and have a conversation with me. Tell me, hey, I think you're full of crap here. Or I actually agree with you here. It's what bothers me most is twofold. It's one, that attitude that you were saying, like, you know, it's just a bunch of nerds. It's, it's not taking the time to learn about it. And that's also the fault of the analytical people for not taking a step back and saying, well, let me let, let me explain it a little bit better to you. I don't think analytic people do a good job of that at all. The second aspect of it is just blaming analytics when something goes wrong. Not at, like Blake Snell last year in the World Series. Analytics killed this game. Oh, analytics is the reason they lost. I'm like, well, two things. Number one, look at all the analytic people on Twitter. We're all saying, what are they doing pulling Blake Snell? Now, the second thing is analytics is just a tool. It's a help. It's helping you make a decision. It's giving you more information. All the information said was Blake Snell does not do as well third time through the order. Kevin Cash had any had that information available to him. He had the ability to say, I get what the data says, and I get it's probably suggesting I should take him out. 
but I'm not gonna. He's dealing. I got to take a risk once in a while. It's not. It's not some flow chart that just tells you every situation is the same. It's. It's just a frustration for me that you know. The Dodgers won the World Series last year, and they were the most analytically inclined team in baseball. And they just happened to be the most talented, but they got there because of a lot of reliance on analytics. Like, analytics might have lost the World Series, but it also probably won it, too. So it's it's the mentality of blaming analytics for everything is the second part. And I think, again, if you're willing to take the time to learn and you just still won't agree with me, fine. I'm not here to try and convince you. I'm trying to hear, trying to explain my point to you. But if you're not willing to hear me out and you're just going to blame me when something doesn't go the way you think it should go, I got a problem with that, truthfully. I, I think that's the most frustrating thing, is, is if we can't have a discussion. Like, you and I probably will not agree on things, and we will have arguments on Twitter. I guarantee it. Mm-hmm. But if you're willing to sit there and listen to me, I'm going to listen to you, and we're going to explain our points to each other. And I think at the end of the day, that is a much more fruitful conversation than a lot of the crap I see on Twitter. And it's frustrating, personally. Yeah, I think, you know, with the Rays situation, I think a lot of Mm -hmm. people took advantage of that situation because, you know, some some of the analytic guys, not all analytic guys, but some of the analytic guys came into – the season growing with that confidence, you know, more mm-hmm. teams was going into analytics and they was coming out like, I'm on some, I'm the smartest guy in the room shit. Like what, mm-hmm. what, what the analytics says go. So yep. then it's kind of hard when a person follows the analytic and it blows up in his face. It's sure. kind of hard then to say, well, he shouldn't follow the analytics on that. Sure. One. Because you know, they were so analytic. At that time, you know. So I think that's where, like, a lot of dinosaurs, as they call us, have a problem is, you know, it's like some analytics guys came in like, we the best, Mm -hmm. you know. We the smartest guys in the room. You guys don't know what you're talking about. You don't understand the numbers. And, you know, it's like, hold on, hold on. Yeah. (laughs) You know, hold on, short stuff. Just be be good. (laughs) Calm down for a minute, you know what I mean? Let it. Let us explain baseball a little bit. Not saying you don't know baseball, sure. but there's some stuff in baseball that you got to understand because it's totally a situational game, which yeah, is absolutely. it, you know. And, and you talk about this being the smoke room, and I got, I got the same problem with the analytics people who aren't willing to step back and take a second and just call people dinosaurs and boomers and don't explain it. It's like, how do you expect people to give you a seat at the table in terms of sitting there and talking baseball and really getting to understand your point. If you're just going to give them crap the entire time about what they don't want to listen to, if you're not willing to sit there and have a good conversation and explain yourself, Mm -hmm. that's just as bad as being on the other side, not willing to listen. Mm -hmm. Like I got, I mean, I have come across a lot of analytics people that I, I, I don't get, I don't have good conversations with simply because it's like, well, I, I get what you're saying, but you got to get off that point for just a minute. The MVP last year with Abreu and Ramirez, mm. oh, man. <laughs> I I run Diamond Digest. There were a lot of unhappy people with that. I'm like, it's not just a numbers game all the time, though. That's what you got to step back and understand. And that's that's a kind of a good little lesson for you. Yeah. That, you got to take a step back. 
Like analytics might have said one thing, but there's stuff analytics can't quantify. I'm sorry. I wanted to be able to quantify everything it can't. And being able to sit back and realize that and have a conversation based off that Mm. is something I think a lot of analytical people struggle with too. Yeah, and I mean, you got to think they play totally two different positions. Mm-hmm. And especially like if you're talking about war, Ramirez is automatically going to get a leg up in the war Absolutely. because of the defensive position he plays. So you have to look at that. I mean, first base get hurt. Catcher as well. I mean, mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to judge those two positions because even though they're involved in every play, they're actually responsible for very little outs during the sure. course of a season. So it's kind of hard to judge those positions. You know, I'm finding that out myself. It's really kind of hard to quantify, like, well, was that because of – was that out because of Abreu? Like, you know, for shortstop throw one hop across mm-hmm. the field or whatever. Is that out because of Abreu or was that a really catchable ball? You know, is that – right. should be a routine play. Or with a catcher, I mean – how much is he responsible for the good games of a pitcher? I mean, that's really it's really hard to quantify that. I mean, like, and yeah, absolutely. any catcher could probably go catch uh, Jacob Degrom, mm-hmm. and they're gonna look genius. You see Real good, saying? yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of hard to quantify that stuff, you mm-hmm. know. So if it's one, I give you my metric stat that I would like to see go yeah. away and be done with. And you can give me a traditional stat that you would like to be done with. So I'll All start right. first to let you think about it. The one metric stat I would like to see go, and admittedly, I've just dived into it half-heartedly, but I would like to see the pitch frame metric go. Okay. Because we've seen, as White Sox fans, just this year, how inconsistent umpires' strike zones are. So who's to say that a catcher is actually stealing those strikes sure. and an umpire is just not that hard? Yeah. Or I've seen it where Grandel would be up to a bat and an umpire called a strike on him and he'll look at him because when he was catching – he didn't receive the pitcher he's catching didn't receive that mm-hmm. same strike call. So was it because of Grandel Framing that he didn't receive that strike sure. call? You see what I'm saying? So that's a stat to me that is too subjective. And you you're hear, absolutely right. And you hearing this from a guy that loves uh I I kind of like subjectivity because the game of baseball <laughs> is so sure. uh you know um situational. But that's just one stat that I think if me and you was to watch a game and we was just chart like, okay, yeah, he mm-hmm. he stole that strike. No, he didn't steal that strike. I think we'll be maybe 50-50 at best. Yeah. You know, so that's, that's a metric I would like to see go. There is a lot of conversation, especially now with like having that on scorecards Twitter profile. There's a lot of conversations that a lot of people who do pitch framing work are going to have to go back and I I think really reevaluate how often they put umpires into play. Um, because there there is an element that you know you you have to be able to play to what the umpire is doing. Mm-hmm. Like if you're able to get a pitch that's probably not that close, but you know, hey, 
we can work a little bit down and I'm still going to get that. Like you got to be able to play to that too. And, and how you present it is important. Mm-hmm. I think how, how maybe it's not so much the framing, but the receiving of it too. Like, even if it is just the umpire, you got to receive it, frame it, whatever you want to say, you got to, you got to make it look good to convince them. Even if he is just that inconsistent, mm-hmm. you'll watch umpires kind of wait a second, see how it looks, see how it's received. And it's like, okay, now I'll make my call. Okay. So I, I think you're absolutely right. I think, especially now when we have so much more information available on what umpires kind of look like people who do the typical framing metrics are going to have to take a step back and say, Hey, you know, what, what is the true value that the umpire is attributed can be attributed? And what's the true value of the catcher? Game? Cause catcher's got a true value. Even if it's diminished, you're still going to see the top framers stay the same. The top catchers in those metrics stay the same. It's just going to be more so, so a shift of how the, um, relative quantity of value they're providing that way. I I think you're bringing up an absolutely good point that, you know, umpires are human and we got to factor that in too. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just, you know, that's a hard (laughs) scorecard. I wouldn't, I I personally wouldn't be the one, want to be the one that's trying to keep score. You know, did this guy still a pitch or did this guy not still a pitch? I mean, we see an example of that. I think, uh, was it Giolito pitching? Anyway, it was one of the games where the umpire, and he was doing it for both teams, so he was mm-hmm. consistent with that, but he was calling like six inches off the outside yeah. corner of the plate consistently. So it's like, do you give credit to Grandel for that when the guy is consistently calling that pitch right. a strike, even though it's not a strike? Uh, do you give you know the credit to the other catchers? Well, I mean, they both getting the same strike, you know, yeah. so... And even that too, you know, it's the other side of things too, especially in that scenario. Maybe Grandal doesn't get a strike that's a little off the plate, but that's kind of where the umpire has been calling it. Now, do you ding Grandal for that? Because, you know, even though it's off the plate, he didn't get it for him. Now that's, that's kind of where that, the whole framing idea of losing runs or losing calls for your guys too comes in. It's not just calls in the zone that don't get called. It's, you know, if the umpire's established zone, as they call it, is a foot wider on each side, it's dramatic, but still, mm-hmm. it's a foot wider on each side, and you're not getting calls in that zone, yeah. do you ding the guy for that, too? You kind of have to, Yeah, that's even though I it's mean. not in the established zone. Exactly. That's why I say, it, it. to me, that metric has the possibility of being way too inconsistent, like, to depend mm-hmm. on, because, I mean, we've seen this year, I mean, umpires are all over the place. Yeah, I mean, you got some at the way top of the zone. Some won't even mm-hmm. call that pitcher strike. You know what I mean? For so sure. It's just, to me, so much, it's too subjective to really say this guy is elite because mm-hmm. this metric is just it's too up in the air for me. Sure. So what traditional stat would you like to see go away? I would like to see less of an emphasis placed, especially, and I'll tell you why, as we talk about this, is, is pitcher wins. And the reasoning behind that is when, when we're talking about, I was thinking about this the other day, some of the great pitchers right now, Jacob deGrom, Clayton Kershaw, these guys, when you sit down, you're like, you're thinking, yep, Hall of Famer, probably Hall of Fame track right now, at least in this era. Mm-hmm. There are going to be guys that, you look at and you're like, hey, this is a 
Hall of Fame type player that isn't hitting those 200 win benchmarks anymore. That's just not going to happen in today's game. I agree. And I don't want, and it isn't more so on a year to year basis of did he get 13 wins or did he get 20? I, I don't really care on a year to year basis. I care more when we're looking at the career of a player. I don't want my worst fear, truthfully, is having players that we would sit here and say, we think they're Hall of Fame worthy. 10 years in the future, when they're on the Hall of Fame ballot, I got to read all these reports while he didn't hit 200 wins and all that. I don't want to see that because we've got a lot of good pitchers in this era who are not going to hit 200 wins in their career. It's just not going to happen. And I don't want their legacy to be diminished because of it. Year to year, pitcher wins. It is what it is. Like, I'm not going to fret too much over it. I just don't want it to be at the end of the day that we're still using that when we're evaluating the talents of a player at the end of their career. I, I think you got to keep your play, team in ball games. Did you do that? And you can kind of look at ERA, FIP, all those types of stats where it's like, give me a general sense of where you kept your team in the game. I don't feel in today's day and age, the wind does that. Pitchers aren't going six, seven, eight innings anymore. Not everyone's Lance Lynn. Mm-hmm. Like Lance Lynn's just going to be your bulldog who throws a hundred pitches a game. Yeah, throw a probably gets you into the seventh and eighth inning. He's a unicorn right yeah, now yeah, in terms back. of what he's doing. Yeah. I just think I, I don't want to see unless they change how a pitcher or how a win is given. I don't want to see the game that was played even just 10 years ago and the dramatic difference from now. I don't want to see that diminish the legacy of some of the great pitchers we're watching now, because we're watching some of the best in quite some time. And I don't want to see them diminished because of win numbers. I'm, you know, I'm going to agree with you as far as I agree with the wins, because a pitcher winning a game, unless he's going nine, mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to place it all on him. And even if he yeah. goes nine, I mean, we've seen uh, Giolito, not get a W because uh, Magical made an error. I think it was right. opening opening uh, day for the White Sox. You yep. know, so they're so dependent on the defense doing its job, and they also so dependent on the offense doing yep. its job that it's kind of hard to really say that if a guy doesn't get this certain amount of victories, that he's not a Hall of Famer. Sure. So, me as a traditionalist, I, I agree with that. And I and I can admit I'm someone who used to love the twenty win seasons. I mean sure. I, you know, that was a great accomplishment. Right. But when you think about it, I mean like how many games and I'm not saying it was a lot of games, but how many games a pitcher left and the bullpen came I mean, with a terrible situation and the bullpen came in and did the job. Like right. who who should get credit? I mean the Starting pitch is going to get credit for that W, but was right. it actually his W? I mean, was it this guy exactly. who bailed him out? It should, should that be his W, you know? You you pitched five innings, you gave up seven runs, but your team scored 12, and you got the win. Yeah, like, the, yeah, so. I mean, that wasn't a great game by you. Like, yeah, that was I, exactly. I think of it, too, like at the back end of the bullpen, closer blows a save, mm-hmm. stays in the game for the next inning. He gets the win. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't like that. It's like now you just you you just completely ruined a win for somebody else. Yeah. 
But you get your reward. offense picked you up as they should, mm-hmm. and now you get credit for that yeah. win. Yeah. That we just we could have had you get the save the inning before, but you blew that one and made our offense go back to work. Yeah, so, That's where it's like you lose so many situations like that. It's like I don't want that to diminish legacies. Yeah, I, that's I agree with you on that point. The only point I kind of disagree, I think, if you look at like playoff baseball, it's sure. normally the team who wins is the team that at least got two or three guys that can go that six. Seven innings. Yep. So to me, those horses, like you were talking about with Lance Lynn, they are still very, very valuable in baseball because hundred percent. As we learning as White Sox fans, we supposed to have the best bullpen in the game, but it is hard to cover four innings every, every game. It's, it's yep. extremely difficult to do. You expecting those guys to be on a a game every night, which. As we know, that's not that's really not possible, you know, for right. those guys to be on their A game every night. So I, I that's the only part I disagree with. I think at some point teams are gonna revert back to the old way where they're gonna start looking for guys who can go those give them those good six and seven innings. Mm-hmm. But um I would like to see like I, I haven't done it, but I would like to see somebody correlate like ERA just starting pitches not bullpen guys but starting pitches ERA to wins whether that whether a guy who has a very low ERA over his career does he have more wins than somebody that has a higher <laughs> ERA yeah. than him you know and that that would tell you a, a story too because if this guy was giving up less runs per game than another guy, but he has less W's, that'll tell you a lot how wins are not really always on wins and losses are not yeah. really always on this guy, you know. So, but I agree, man. I mean, I hate to say it. I love the 300 wins. I mean, that's like the pinnacle. I mean, that's, I mean, you. Absolutely. You know, so, but, but I got to agree with you. I mean, wins is not really. All on the pitcher. They play a role. Don't get me wrong. They play a 100%. role. 100%. But, I mean, if you was to put a percentage on it, what are they worth? Like 30% of a W maybe yeah. or something like that? You know, it's not yeah. a very, it's not even 50%. You know what I mean? Right. So, it, it's a very low, per, not low, but, you know, it's not enough to put everything on them as far as wins and losses, you know. I completely hear you. You know, so. Uh, so this the smoke room. So, who do you want to give smoke to? Oh man, you know, I've already given out plenty. I got plenty more. I think the most frustrating thing is how. Let me phrase this in a way that makes sense. You know, we talk a lot about the, the conversations on Twitter and people not willing to have them, and people. I just think the most frustrating thing is sitting there on Twitter, and it is such a valuable tool. It is such a way to connect with people. It's a way to get to know people. You and I meet through Twitter, just through back and forth, good conversations. It is the most horrible feeling for me and most frustrating feeling for me. When you're reading through like comments on tweets or comments on people analyzing something, and it's just some troll on there just 
saying what they got to say. I got some guy in my mentions yesterday with Grandal. I'm trying to explain my point on Grandal. He keeps tagging me. It's like, suck money, suck doll. It's like, are you kidding me? Like, that is, like, we have such a tool with Twitter to converse and have comments and make points. And that's really how you're choosing to use it is to sit there and troll me. Like, what is that going to do besides get you blocked at the end of the day? And I don't block people. But what's that going to do besides get you blocked, the one person I ever block? Like, is that fruitful for you? Like, is that your goal at the end of the day to get me so aggravated? I gotta be, you gotta be the one person I want to block. Like, use it for the conversations you can have and the people you can meet and the things you can learn. Don't just sit there, be a troll. And just, there is so much good that can come from Twitter. And the people who don't use it for that, and I'm not saying I haven't had my fair share of just frustration tweets, let's be honest. But to not use Twitter the way it is, that is the most frustrating thing for me. And reading through comments, I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Like, be, be someone who shows a little bit of maturity in what they do and have a decent conversation with someone. Like, that is such a frustrating thing for me. Anyone who's sitting there and just instead of conversing with me is like, oh, he sucks. Oh, well, he sucked. You dropped that. Oh, I'm like... That's not a conversation we're having here. Like, sit down, talk with me. Let's learn something at the end of the day. We're not doing that right now enough. And, and that's that's what I'm giving the smoke to is just have a good conversation. Use it for what it's meant to use it for. Don't just be a troll. Like, that's just brutal. Well, you heard it here on the smoke room. <laughs> Jordan gave you trolls the smoke. But me, on the other hand, I enjoy you trolls. I'm glad you guys exist. <laughs> Y'all are my motherfucking sons. So I appreciate you. <laughs> anyway, this was the smoke room. I had a nice conversation with Jordan from Socks on 35th. If you want to follow him on Twitter, you can follow him at jlazowski14. And you can follow uh, his, uh, where he's the editor-in-chief at on Socks on 35th. You can follow him at Socks on 35th. And you can follow Diamond Digest at Diamond Digest on Twitter as well. So thank you for listening to the show. I hope you guys, you know, come back and give us another listen. I appreciate everybody, even you motherfucking trolls. (laughs) 